0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Coates was really a pioneer. She lived in Moscow in very dark times under Stalin. And she had a young chimpanzee. And she wrote like seven books, I think, all in Russian. And one of them was finally translated into English, in which she describes her uh, encounters with uh, Joni the chimpanzee. And Joni showed a lot of reactions that I would call empathy even though she doesn't use the term for that. And even though in those days, certainly you wouldn't talk talk about empathy in animals, but Joni was very empathic. And so one of the things that she describes is that if the chimp escaped from the house onto the roof of the house, there was no way to, to get him down. She, she could hold out bananas and she could hold out all sorts of goodies and the chimp would not come down. But if she cried, if she sat down in a chair... And she started sobbing. Then Johnny would come down, and he would rush down and put an arm around her.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. My name is Mark Malloy, and I'm the Reviews Editor at Make a Literary Magazine. The focus of my contribution to this Animal Studies special series will be animal rights. I'm talking today with Professor Frans de Waal. Professor de Waal is a Dutch-American biologist and primatologist known for his work on the behavior and social intelligence of primates. His first book, Chimpanzee Politics, compared the schmoozing and scheming of chimpanzees involved in power struggles with that of human politicians. Ever since, Duval has drawn parallels between primate and human behavior, from peacekeeping and morality to culture. His scientific work has been published in hundreds of technical articles and journals, such as Science, Nature, Scientific American, and outlets specializing in animal behavior. His popular books, translated into 20 languages, have made him one of the world's most visible primatologists. His latest books are The Age of Empathy, The Bonobo and the Atheist, and Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are. Two recent edited volumes are The Primate Mind and Evolved Morality. Dual is C.H. Candler professor in the psychology department of Emory University, and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Since 2013, he is a distinguished professor at Utrecht University. He has been elected to the US National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences. In 2007, he was selected by time as one of the world's 100 most influential people today, And in 2011 by Discover as among 47 all-time great minds in science. Being editor-in-chief of the journal Behavior, DeWall has stepped in the footsteps of Nico Tinbergen, one of the founders of ethology. His latest research concerns empathy and cooperation, inequity aversion, and social cognition in chimpanzees, bonobos, and other species. He and his students have pioneered studies On how behavior is culturally transmitted in the primates, whether elephants recognize themselves in mirrors, how primates react to unequal reward divisions, how well primates spontaneously cooperate, and whether bonobo orphans are as emotionally affected by their trauma as human orphans. Professor DeWall's most recent book, and the book under discussion today, is 2019's Mama's Last Hug. Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves, published by W.W. Norton. Friends de Waal has spent four decades at the forefront of animal research. Following up on the best-selling Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are, which investigated animal intelligence, Mama's Last Hug delivers a fascinating exploration of the rich emotional lives of animals. Mama's Last Hug begins with the death of Mama, a chimpanzee matriarch who formed a deep bond with biologist Jan van Hoff. When Mama was dying, van Hoff took the unusual step of visiting her in her cage for a last hug. Their goodbyes were filmed and went viral. Millions of people were deeply moved by the way Mama embraced the professor, welcoming him with a big smile while reassuring him by patting his neck in a gesture often considered typically human, but that is in fact common to all primates. This story and others like it form the core of DeWall's argument, showing that humans are not the only species with the capacity for love, hate, fear, shame, guilt, joy, disgust, and empathy. DeWall discusses facial expressions, the emotions behind human politics, the illusion of free will, animal sentience, and of course, mama's life and death. The message is one of continuity between us and other species, such as the radical proposal that emotions are like organs. We don't have a single organ that other animals don't have, and the same is true for our emotions. Mama's Last Hug opens our hearts and minds to the many ways in which humans and other animals are connected, transforming how we view the living world around us. Welcome, Professor DeWall, and thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. First off, I just wanted to say that I think your book is wonderful. Uh, On the inside jacket, the reader finds uh, quite an incredible blurb. According to Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, your book is, quote, utterly splendid. I doubt that I've ever read a book as good, end quote. And she isn't wrong. Your book goes to the very heart of what it is to be human, to be alive on planet Earth. And to our relationship with those fellow creatures with whom we share the planet. It's a really beautiful book and an important book. And I thank you for writing it and for dedicating your life to this important work. Well, thank you. As a way to begin, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about yourself, your background, your training, the focus of your work.
0: I was born in the Netherlands and I'm a a biologist. I was trained as a biologist. So that's already right away a, a bit of a difference with most experts of animal behavior in the U.S., which are usually psychologists or sometimes anthropologists. The biologists, they have a tradition called ethology, And actually, one of the, the Dutch founders of that got a Nobel Prize for that, so it's a very important uh, direction. And it's called ethology, and it, it mainly concerns observations of naturalistic or natural behavior And so, instead of forcing animals into, let's say, pressing a lever in a Skinner box or something, you see what they do spontaneously. And throughout my book, I think you see that interest is that I'm interested in their spontaneous behavior, their natural capacity for conveying emotions, having emotions. What are they good for? Usually, from a biological perspective, in the sense that I look at what they're good for. What what do they do for the animals? And so that's my background and. After I did my studies on rats and birds and monkeys and chimpanzees in the Netherlands, I moved in the early 1980s to Wisconsin and stayed in Wisconsin for 10 years to work at a primate center there. And after that, I moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where we have at Emory University, we have a very big primate center to work with chimpanzees because we had many chimpanzees at the time.
1: You title your book, Mama's Last Hug and begin your book recounting that incident, for good reason. Uh, Among the incredible incidents or anecdotes recounted in your book, that is perhaps the one best designed to really tug at the reader's heartstrings. This, and maybe the moment also captured on film, in which the chimpanzee Wunda hugs Jane Goodall upon being released into the forest. Both hugs, incidentally. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's a fitting place to begin your book, and I think also a fitting place to begin our discussion. I was wondering, could you briefly describe Jan van Hoff, your doctoral advisor, and then Mama, and recount for us the scene of their last hug?
0: Yeah, so Mama was the alpha female of the Arnhem chimpanzee colony, which was and is probably still uh, the largest chimpanzee colony at a zoo, which lives on a very large island. And uh, she she was alpha female for 40 years. Chimpanzee society is male-dominated, and so an alpha female ranks below the males, but she had a lot more influence than most of the males. And so I always make this distinction between power and rank. Her rank was maybe not at the top, but together with the oldest male of the group, she basically ran that whole colony. And since she was so long alpha female for 40 years, when she died, she was 59. And by that time, she could barely walk anymore. And and so it is really telling about the situation of female chimps is that their rank is really not dependent on physical strengths or physical abilities as it is in the males. It is much more uh, respect for age is important and personality is important. And so mama stayed alpha female for such a long time. And she was the center of the group. Uh, and everyone recognized her as that humans did and chimpanzees did. And uh, when she died, Jan van Hof, my professor, who was 80 at the time, he decided to say goodbye to her i I was not in the country, and so I couldn't do that. but he decided to go into her sleeping quarters and because she was she was rolled up in a nest and she she was clearly dying and to say goodbye and That was a very moving moment we We never go in with an adult chimpanzee that is almost suicidal to do that. They're much stronger than we are. And so we normally never do that. And Jan had never done that in his life before, but he um, decided to visit her. And it resulted in an embrace between the two, which was filmed and which was put on the internet and went viral. And I think probably a hundred million people have seen that uh, a very moving moment. And it was also shown on, on Dutch national TV, uh, visit an interview with Jan and so on. And so it was a very interesting moment. What, what struck me, and that's why I took that as the title of the book, is not only that people were very moved, which I could fully understand, I was very moved by the video clip, but, but that people were surprised. P- people were surprised that the expressions of a chimpanzee and the moment and the embrace were so human-like. They, they were almost like two humans. That's what people would say. And I thought, well, we have been saying for 50 years <laughs> that chimpanzees are our closest relatives, that the DNA shows that they're 98.5% identical to us, why would you be surprised that their emotions are also very similar to ours? And so people were surprised by the expression, and especially mama tapped on the, on the neck and the shoulders of Jan in order to calm him down, which is a common way of chimpanzee females to calm down a crying juvenile. And so she, she basically calmed down my professor because he was, I think, a bit nervous getting in there which was typical her uh, her personality, I think. And so I took that as a title in order to explain that, that all the facial expressions, all the gestures, basically everything we do every day when we talk with our friends are, are things that you also see in the apes. They're, they're almost identical. And so I took that as a starting point to explain uh, about the emotions of animals.
1: I, I am not personally a, an especially emotional person, but I teared up reading your account of this and also watching the video, it's all very moving. If the listener wants to Google it, the name of the YouTube video is Jan van Hoff, H-O-O-F-F, visits chimpanzee mama, 59 years old and very sick, emotional meeting. That's the name of the video. If you want to Google it, just Google Mama 59 hug or Hoff, H-O-O-F-F, mama hug. And for the Jane Goodall hug, just Google Jane Goodall releases chimp.
0: The Jane Goodall hug is interesting. That's the, with a, a chimpanzee who is being released. And it, they open the cage and Jane Goodall is there and they open uh, the cage. It is in the for- released in the forest. So so the chimpanzee is set free, basically, which was a wild chimpanzee, I think, recovering from something. And uh, instead of walking off, I think the chimpanzee wound up, did, did walk away, but then she returned quickly and she hugged uh, Jane Goodall. And then she went off. And I think it's an interesting act of gratitude, probably, in the sense that we have now many observations of gratitude in animals. And that probably this female realized, oh, yeah, I cannot just walk away from this. I, they just saved my life, basically, because they treated her for a long time. I cannot just walk off. And so she, she came back to hug her, her rescuers.
1: One of the things that I hope we get to is how similar these emotional behaviors of chimps and other animals is to human behaviors. And as you said, this really shouldn't be a surprise. Their behaviors are very human because they're closely related to humans and vice versa. Our behaviors are very chimp-like because we're closely related to chimpanzees and other species. But even still, it's, it's remarkable to see it, to read about these, these intimate emotional moments in your book. Speaking of emotions, your, your book is about emotions. I could say animal emotions, but that seems a bit redundant. In your account, emotions are emotions, more or less. While different species' emotions aren't identical, there's a continuum between them. And you can't draw hard distinctions between them. Could you begin by defining emotions for us and feelings so the listener is clear on the distinction? And could you then explain for us the purpose of emotions, why they evolved, how they differ from instincts, and why that difference is so important?
0: Yeah, so emotions are mental states and body states, because the, the emotions live, live between the mind and the body, basically. The, the body is always involved. The heart rate, the voice, the blood pressure, the temperature, the body is always involved. If someone says, I was very emotional and nothing happened to his body, that's uh, very suspicious. I think something needs to happen to your body when you're emotional. And so basically what the emotions do is they prepare your body for action. So fear, for example, we say we have cold feet when we're fearful. And the cold feet comes because blood is withdrawn from the extremities. So, for example, when a rat is fearful, it has only not only cold feet but also a cold tail. So, so that's what, what fear does. And so fear is one of these emotions that prepare you for action. And so you have love and anger and all these emotions. And so emotions prepare you for action. And that's why we biologists think emotions are adaptive. They set you on the road to a certain action even though Emotions don't specify what that action should be. And, and that's the big difference with instincts. Instincts seem to, well, we don't use that term very much anymore, but instincts are supposed to tell you what to do under what circumstances, whereas the emotions just prepare you. And the reason we make in the study of animal behavior usually a distinction between emotions and feelings is that feelings are private states, and, and we don't have access to the feelings of animals. We don't know what their feelings are. Uh, I would say the same actually applies to human feelings. So you, you can tell me that you were sad at the funeral of somebody. I don't know if your sadness is like my sadness. I, I have no idea. And so humans talk about their emotions and feelings as if it's the same thing, but the feelings are actually your, are private states and are really not knowable to others. So, so that, these are the distinctions that we make. Uh, I always feel, because people say sometimes, how can you study emotions in animals? You will never know the emotions. What they, what they mean is that they're confusing feelings and emotions. I will not know the feelings of a dog, that's for sure, but I can clearly see the emotions of a dog, and I can measure the emotions just as I can measure them in humans. And so emotions are perfectly measurable. It's when we get to the feelings that we have trouble.
1: You are an observational scientist. You write, quote, for me, observation trumps any theory. What animals do in real life always has priority over preconceived notions about how they ought to behave. When you are a born observer, this is what you get, an inductive approach to science, end quote. Could you talk to us a bit about observation, uh, about the differences between field work and controlled experiment and the benefits each brings? Later on, I'm going to ask you about your own experimental setup and the role of transparency. But for now, if possible, I'd like you to just focus on what types of information do we get from field work and controlled experiments and what the benefits of each are for humans as well as for other species.
0: Yeah, so observation can be done very systematically. People don't always realize that. They think if, if a field worker goes to the field, he just sits there and watches the animals and then comes back with um, some description. No, but we are very systematic about it. We, we have a long list of definitions uh, maybe 60 definitions of different behaviors from grooming to fighting to whatever sex play and so on. So we have a long list of definitions of behavior, which are usually codified because you need to type them into some digital recorder usually. And uh, we have systems of how you collect data. And sometimes people collect thousands and thousands of entries that go into some computer. If, if for example, a field worker says males are more aggressive than females he can come up with some data. He can say males are three times or 3.5 times more aggressive than females. And so we, we tabulate and we, uh, we note all these things. And in addition to that, in addition to that systematic collection of data that we do, uh, we also keep diaries. I always kept, and that's you talk about the anecdotes, the data on the chimpanzees or the monkeys that I study are very clear and presented in my scientific articles but I also have diaries of all the stories that we saw and the things that we saw happening uh, in a more sort of descriptive manner. And that's where I, I get the anecdotes that I have. So observation is, is absolutely essential and is beautiful. And what I miss, I'm, I'm a biologist who has been teaching for 25 years in a psychology department, is that the psychologists don't do much observation anymore. Psychologists usually have questionnaires and ask people about themselves And all they get is basically the opinions that people have about themselves, which, in my opinion, is not really worth the same thing as an observation of human behavior. Mm -hmm. So I prefer observations. And then you ask about experimental setups. That's something that in the field is much harder to do than in captivity. Field workers sometimes try to do experiments, but there's also quite a few field workers who don't like to do experiments because Their goal is to study the natural, undisturbed behavior of their animals. And so if you're going to set up experiments, you're messing with them. And they don't like to do that. And so in captivity, we set up experiments, controlled experiments, because then you can create situations. Let's say you see in your observations that chimpanzees share food very easily. Uh, And then you can wonder, do they share food to get rid of the beggars? Do they share food because they can't stand all the whining and begging that these individuals do? Do they share food because they have too much food anyway? And, and so you can have different theories of why they share food. And you, you can set up an experiment. So you can set up an experiment much more controlled where you manipulate these things, like you manipulate who is their partner, you manipulate how much food they have, how hungry they are, and so on. And so experiments are necessary to get at the roots of certain behavior and, and the mechanisms behind it in a way that in the field cannot be done. And so I've always been an observer, but uh, when I came to the Yerkes Primate Center in the 1990s, I decided I'm also going to do experiments. And so the chimpanzees that I worked with who lived outdoors were trained to come in, inside a building. So once a day, they would usually come inside for maybe half an hour or, or a little bit less. And we would set up an experiment where they could do a touchscreen task or a food sharing task or whatever. And so I started to combine my observations with, with experiments, which, which gives you more control over things.
1: Emotions are everywhere in the animal kingdom, from birds to fish to insects, and even in brainy mollusks, such as the octopus. That's a quote from your book and one of the main findings of your work and that of other ethologists who study animal behavior closely. Again, you write, quote, more and more, I believe that all emotions we are familiar with can be found one way or another in all mammals and that the variation is only in the details, elaborations, applications, and intensity, end quote. And again, elsewhere, you write, quote, a radical proposal. Emotions are like organs. They are all needed and we share all of them with other animals. In the same way that every part of our body has its purpose. Every emotion evolved for a reason. None is more basic than the others, and none are uniquely human." I'll be asking you about a few specific examples in the coming questions, but for the time being, would you quickly just summarize for us our general understanding of emotions in animals?
0: Yeah, I think that statement that I made there relates to the, the idea of six basic emotions. So Paul Eggman, who's one of the pioneers of studies of human emotions and human emotional expressions, a psychologist, he proposed that there were six basic emotions because there were six facial expressions that we can find all over the world that are universally human, like for fear and, and anger and so on, and that we can also find equivalents in other species. And he said, these six basic emotions are the emotions that are biological that we have as humans and that you can also find in other species. Uh, the, all the other emotions uh, are called secondary emotions and are uniquely human. Many people consider them uniquely human. And so they basically say animals have six emotions and that's it. Uh, we humans, we have 25 or 30 or how many, you, whatever you want to make. And I think that's total nonsense. I, I totally disagree with that. And the fact that we cannot find a facial expression for certain emotions doesn't mean that it's not a basic emotion. Let's say, let's say an emotion like love. Love seems to me quite important. Most people think it's maybe the most important emotion. Uh, And love does not fall under the six basic emotions because there is not a specific expression, specific facial expression for love. Now, love and attachment, we have measured in animals for ages, and and there's excellent data now that actually the attachment system of rodents uh, through oxytocin and so on is very similar to that in humans, and they they, they go through similar depressions if the attachment partner is gone and so on. And so love and attachment uh, is an emotion that we share with other species, and even though they don't fall under the six basic emotions because of the facial expression business, I think we should count them, and so I, I make the point there that um, there's so many emotions that are not listed as basic. So, for example, hope and gratitude and guilt and shame and embarrassment and well, well there's tons of emotions that, and love, as I mentioned. There's tons of emotions that are not listed under the basic emotions and that are that we share with other species. And in fact, I don't think that there is any emotion in the human that we don't find in other species uh, there may be some like let's say religious emotions or something some some that are not so highly relevant in my opinion in daily life daily social life but um, most of the basic social interactions that we have in daily life we we use similar emotions than other species
1: the reader of your book really comes away from it with an undeniable sense that we're looking at the same canvas here across species. I don't think we need to spend too much time on it, but I do think it's worth just briefly addressing the rather poor performance of the sciences for most of history in terms of the study of animal emotions and intelligence. Now, I don't mean to place judgment here. You yourself stress that readers, quote, should keep in mind that without the scrutiny typical of science, We'd still believe that the earth is flat, or that maggots spontaneously crawl out of rotting meat. Science is at its best when it questions common perceptions, end quote. This is absolutely true, undeniably true, full stop. But still, there's skepticism, and then there's denialism. And indeed, you coined a term anthropo-denialism for people that deny inner lives for animals. Would you quickly walk us through the history of denying emotions or intelligence to animals? Famously, there's Rene Descartes in the 17th century, who argued that animals are simply automata with no thoughts or emotions. And then in your book, we get up to the behaviorists in the first half of the 20th century. And more recently, through the sociobiological theories, Of the 70s and 80s that focused exclusively on selfishness and aggression in animals. So for a long time, there there really was a concerted effort to deny that animals had interior lives at all, whether that be intelligence or emotion. That's surprising, counterintuitive, it's interesting, and obviously it's tragic. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that Darwin wrote a whole book. It's called The Expression of the Emotions in Man and Animals. And in Darwin's days, in the 19th century, in his days, it was perfectly fine to talk about the emotions of animals. And everyone accepted that that was a possibility. Then the door got slammed shut by the behaviorists, Skinner and his followers, for one century, for one long century a previous entry, we we didn't talk about animal cognition, animals did not think, they did not have feelings, they had only behavior, and that's why they're called the behaviorists. And all this work that previously happened on animal emotions and animal thinking was sort of dismissed as anthropomorphic. That was the term, that was the big insult that as soon as you said that animals did something smart or had feelings you were being anthropomorphic, you say your dog is jealous you're being anthropomorphic. You shouldn't use that kind of terminology. And so that's the dark age that we went through. And behaviorism had a lot of influence in the U.S., had less influence in in Europe because we had the ethologists, the the biologists there who had a different view, but still also dominated over there. And uh, as a student, I was trained, you you don't talk about animal emotions. You can talk about animal motivations, uh, but not about emotions. And so that's a very dark period we went through and we only dug ourselves out of that by the end of the previous century, like after the 1990s or so, it became more acceptable to talk about cognition and emotions in animals. And by the way, in humans too, that's only after the 1960s or so that we talked openly about human cognition and and human emotions because humans were also, emotions were denied or considered irrelevant, they were not very important. Uh, and so that's a very strange thing for people to hear, but <laughs> we were not allowed to talk much about human emotions either at that time. And so we went through that whole thing and now we have a new generation of, of young scientists who don't mind uh, mentioning cognition in animals and mentioning emotions in animals. It's pretty obvious that they have both of them. And, and so behaviorism is now finally being forgotten. Behaviorism was basically anti-evolutionary, Skinner was not interested in evolution. Skinner was not interested in neuroscience. It was very non-biological. So, for example, for the behaviorists, all animals are essentially the same because all animals have conditioned uh, reflexes, conditioned impulses. And so uh, it's all based on uh, reward and punishment, basically. Associative learning, which is, I'm not denying that it's important. I think it's extremely important stuff. But to reduce all animal and human behavior to that was really not possible. And that's why they're failing. And that's why uh, that whole direction is now fading.
1: Okay. In juxtaposition now to behaviorism, I'm wondering if you would recount a couple of anecdotes from your book that I think swiftly dispatch such casual disregard of the idea that animals have emotions or interior lives. The first story I was hoping you could tell is that of Nadia Lady Gina Coates and the response she got from her adopted chimp, Joni, when Coates fake cried.
0: Yeah, so the, um, Coates was really a pioneer. She lived in Moscow in very dark times under Stalin, and she had a young chimpanzee, and she described, um, she wrote like seven books, I think, all in Russian, and one of them was finally translated into English in which she describes her uh, encounters with uh, Joni, the chimpanzee. And Joni showed a lot of reactions that I would call empathy, even though she doesn't use the term for that. And even though in those days, certainly you wouldn't talk, talk about empathy in animals, but uh, Joni was very empathic. And so one of the things that she describes is that if, if the chimp escaped from the house onto the roof of the house, There was no way to to get him down. She could hold out bananas and she could hold out all sorts of goodies and the chimp would not come down. But if she cried, if she sat down in a chair and she started sobbing, then Johnny would come down and he would rush down and put an arm around her. And if someone was in the neighborhood, he would try to attack that person because clearly it was caused by somebody. And so he he was very protective and very empathic. And that impulse was much stronger than his desire for food, and so so it's an interesting uh, reaction. And and of course, I've done a ton of research on uh, on empathy in animals. Uh, we did a lot of studies on what we call consolation behavior, and basically, what Joni showed was consolation behavior—the way we we documented in, in in many of the apes.
1: In that same section, there's a passage that that I found quite humorous, where you're talking about follow-up studies and. In one study, the researchers were studying the empathetic concern of children, and the researchers accidentally discovered the same response in dogs. What I think happened was there was either a parent or one of the researchers started to fake cry to see how the child would respond, to see if the child would have an empathetic response. And out of nowhere, you know, from another room, the dog runs in puts its head in the parent or the researcher's lap and starts consoling them. It's very moving, but also kind of humorous that, that that is the way research sometimes works. They're looking for this exclusively in children, in humans, and then the animal just swoops in and forces forces the insight, the realization onto the researchers. The second story that I was hoping you would tell concerns the bonobo Kekowit and the moat incident. I won't say anymore.
0: I can, I can explain that. Kakawet, uh, <laughs> named after a peanut. Kakawet is, is in French as a peanut. And so uh, Kakawet was the, the male bonobo at the San Diego Zoo. And he was very protective of his group, his small group of bonobos that he had. And, and bonobos, by the way, they, they are equally close to us as chimpanzees. And, and they're more empathic than chimpanzees are. Uh, a, friend, a Friendlier, sexier species than the chimpanzee. And what happened in this case is that uh, the the animal caretakers, they had uh, emptied out the moat. There's there's a water moat that was around the place where they lived, and they had emptied it out, and the bonobos had descended with a rope into the dry moat, and they were playing around there, and the young ones were playing around, because uh, normally they never get to to go there, of course. Uh, When the caretakers went to the kitchen to turn on the water faucet to fill up the moat again, It was clear that uh, Kakouet knew exactly what they were going to do. He had seen it, of course, uh, course, uh, uh, many, many times. And he started yelling and screaming at them and waving his arms, uh, warning them that they shouldn't be turning on the water faucet. And so the caretakers went outside and looked at the moat and saw that there were several young bonobos in the moat. And so he he was preventing them from doing something stupid, like filling up the moat while there were young bonobos in there. And then Kakawet went in there and he, he descended the rope and he made sure that um, all these young bonobos were out there, out of the out of the mode before uh, the caretakers filled it up. And so he saved basically these young bonobos that way. And and it shows very much how bonobos understand the causes of and the consequences of actions and how concerned he was about these young bonobos. And uh, yeah, so that's that's an act of understanding uh, the sequence of things, so to speak.
1: Also, I mean, this is almost too obvious to be worth mentioning, but you also have communication. He's clearly communicating to the humans. There is something you need to know about. It's very urgent. Please, may I get your attention? Something serious is happening and I need you to respond. I need you to take action about it. So there's also an awareness in the bonobo of humans as individuals with their own interior lives who can understand and acknowledge his communication and respond to it. Another amazing incident that I won't ask you about, I'll just, I'll just recount it, is the rainy day incident and Wolfgang Kohler. You write, quote, Two chimps had been shut out of their shelter during a rainstorm. Wolfgang Kohler, the German pioneer of Thule use studies, happened to walk by and found both apes soaking wet, shivering in the rain. He opened the door for them. Instead of hurrying past him to enter the dry area, however, the chimps hugged the professor in a frenzy of satisfaction. End quote. So your book is just full of these accounts of incidents that are suffused with emotion. There are far more than we're going to be able to cover today. But though your book is primarily about emotions, it's also quite informative in terms of animal intelligence. Now, I'll just add an obligatory note here that... Intelligence and emotions are not mutually exclusive, and are in fact intimately related. Uh, but still, they can be and have historically been studied separately, and so we can discuss them separately. We learn in your book that some animals have triadic awareness, which means not only that they understand their relationship to others, but they also understand the relationships between others and. Not just between other animals of the same species, but between other animals of different species. I think of the example of, I believe it's a chimp who was aware of the head of the zoo, and all the chimps paid deferential respect to the head of the zoo because they saw that the other humans were deferential around this person. We also learn that animals have impulse control, that they can plan for the future, and that they appear to even have inferential reasoning. Could you quickly tell us about Chrysippus's dog and then about the related studies of inferential reasoning conducted more recently by American psychologist David and Ann Premack and their chimpanzee Sarah concerning fruit in boxes?
0: Yeah, so the, the dog, the, that that is an old story about uh, a hunting dog who, is is going after some quarry. I don't know what that was, maybe uh, birds or whatever it was. And, and the dog reaches a point in the road where there are three roads, a split of of three roads. And he sniffs one road and then he sniffs the other road. And then he rushes off across the third one, clearly making an inference that if, since he didn't find it on the first two, the, the, the trail, he, um, he decided that there must be the third one, and, and he didn't even need to sniff, sniff there. He went directly onto the third one. And this old story is often used to show that that animals can do inferential reasoning, uh, even though this is, of course, purely an anecdote and maybe even made up. We don't know the, the origin of it. But there are now experiments on inferential reasoning. The simplest ones, well, you mentioned the one by David Premack. That is a bit of a complex one, but the simplest one that I... Recently, saw was someone would have two cups and would put grapes in uh, one cup and not in the other cup, and then shake the cup and and so the ape. In this case, I think it was an orangutan. The ape could not look into the cups but could listen to them, and of course, the the ape immediately picks the picks the cup where he hears the grape in the cup. And then, in in follow-ups of this experiment, you show him two cups and you shake the empty one. So then you don't hear anything. Uh, then the ape very often picks the other one, uh, inferential reasoning here, thinking that since the other one is empty, this one must be full. And so they do this kind of experiments on inferential reasoning. Uh, we do all sorts of experiments. We also do experiments on planning, for example, where you, where you give apes a tool that they cannot use immediately. So, so they, they have the choice between a reward a tool that they can use right away to get some, some other reward, and a tool, a third tool that they can use tomorrow to get something much bigger, so a much more important reward, and see what the ape does. And there are many apes who pick the 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 third option, they pick the one that they can use tomorrow and they keep it with them and they sleep with it. And so they, they seem to be planning for the future in this case. And, and there's many of this kind of experiments that are now being done that indicate that, that animals don't live just in the present. People always think that that animals live in the present. but and, and it actually relates to this emotion of hope that I mentioned before, is if you pick a tool like this, that, that you know tomorrow will give me a big reward, there must be hope and expectation involved in this case. And so there's the, emotionally, it's also very interesting what they do.
1: Related, it's very humorous in your book when you're contrasting the behavior of different animals and children during the marshmallow test, which I believe is some variation of you put a candy in front of someone and you say the longer they can wait, the more candy they will get. So, the test is to weigh the immediate pleasure of eating the candy right now versus the greater later gratification of having 10 candies down the road. And what re- the researchers found was that the children and animals not only had equal success at this task, I think they averaged, and I think you say in your book around 18 minutes, but they also had equal coping strategies in the attempt to postpone longer. They looked away. They didn't look at the candy. They attempted to amuse themselves with other things. They tried to find games to play or puzzles, toys to play around with anything to get their mind off the candy.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the marshmallow test has been done with apes. It's an interesting test because it's a test of self-control and impulse control. And, And people often think that animal emotions, yes, maybe animals have emotions, but they have no control over them like we do. Uh, they, they they just have emotions and they just have to follow them. They're the slaves of their emotion, which which is total nonsense because animals need to control their emotions. If, if, if a cat, for example, sees a mouse in the distance, the cat cannot just rush over to catch the mouse. The mouse will be gone by the time the cat gets there. The cat needs to sneak up. And so con- control the impulse and, and take its time and uh, sneak up to the mouse and take maybe half an hour to get close to it and then pound. And so impulse control is found all over the animal kingdom. And the marshmallow test is a good example. So what they do with the apes is they give them a machine and from the machine drop candies. Every 30 seconds, a candy drops into a bowl. And the ape has learned that if he removes the bowl with all the candies, the stream stops. And so he has an interest in waiting as long as he can. And, and the apes, just like children, they can wait about 15 minutes with these things. And so the impulse control of an ape is basically the same as that of humans. And, and we can see that kind of impulse control all the time in their social life because they live in hierarchies. They have a hierarchical society. And so uh, if, if you're low-ranking in a hierarchy, of course, you need to control your impulses, otherwise you get into trouble. And so that happens all the
1: time could you talk to us briefly about the question of conscious sentience and whether animals have it? You write that, quote, sentience in the narrow sense implies subjective feeling states, such as pain and pleasure. When we get to species equipped with brains, sentience becomes far more likely. Elephants, apes, dogs, cats, birds, crabs. If anthropods feel pain, as experiments imply, We should consider them sentient in the sense of having subjective feeling states. This includes the lobsters that we boil alive and the insects that we exterminate by the trillions. Whether these states resemble ours or those of mammals in general is not the issue. What matters is that these animals feel and remember. By extension, I'd suggest applying this rule to all animals with a central nervous system unless we find evidence to the contrary. End quote. This seems to me a significant, even a profound point. Could you talk to us briefly about sentience in animals?
0: Yes, yeah, in sentience, we find sentience in the sense that you can experience things and and, and remember that. Um, that is probably found in, in all the all the mammals, including in invertebrates. Conscious sentience, you mentioned that at some point, consciousness. Uh, that may be more limited. Uh, um, And it's very hard to define consciousness. The the trouble with consciousness is that it was probably invented to set humans apart from animals and say we are conscious and animals are not conscious. And as a result, it's very ill-defined, and we don't have empirical tests of consciousness. But what I find interesting about consciousness is that there are certain things that we humans cannot do without consciousness. So you cannot plan a party for tomorrow for your friends without consciously thinking about the drinks you're going to buy, the, the music you're going to play. Nowadays, we need to think about the masks and the distancing in addition to that. Uh, so you, you, you cannot plan a party without being conscious, conscious of the planning. And, and since we have good evidence that animals can plan and that, for example, chimpanzees in the wild, they carry tools sometimes for several miles to a place where they're going to use the tools. Uh, so, so there is planning involved. Um, you, you assume that since they plan ahead, they must be conscious too. And so consciousness, I think, is not limited to our species and maybe actually quite widespread. It's hard to measure, but we have some indic- indicators for it. And all this discussion about consciousness and and sentience, of course, has moral implications also. That's, for me, the interesting part of it, is that we have for a long time treated animals as if they are rocks. We can do whatever we want with animals. We are the boss of the world, and and we are the only ones who are conscious and the only ones who feel and the only ones who are intelligent. And then you can do with animals whatever you want. And so maybe all these theories of the behaviorists which, which made animals look stupid were maybe also very convenient for us. We thought it was very convenient to think like that about animals. And I think we need to start thinking differently about animals. We cannot do everything we want uh, we can also do with the world, everything, the planet, everything we want. We we also had that attitude, which is now coming back to bite us with the climate change and the virus and everything. Uh, and so we need to become a bit more modest. I sometimes look at it as a flaw of Western philosophy and religion. Western philosophy teaches us that we humans are not really animals. We are something else. I don't know what we are, but we are not animals. We are a separate category. and. And that's a flaw in Western philosophy that it has been very popular to think like that about humans as humans as separate from nature, but it is, is causing all sorts of trouble. And I think um, we need
1: to abandon these views. That's a great transition, actually, into my last question. I'm wondering if you would briefly talk to us about the future of animals in research. Your book presents at least two possible visions for how this could look. One concerns studied design. You write, quote, many experiments could be done on a volunteer basis, provided they are enjoyable for the animals. At the Primate Research Institute in Japan, the outdoor enclosure has cubicles that the chimpanzees can enter anytime to work by themselves on a computer screen. They can also leave anytime they want, end quote. And it does seem like this, this works. This can work. Chimpanzees and other animals can enjoy experiments properly designed. Speaking of your own chimpanzees at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center, you write, quote, the quickest way to get chimpanzees to enter our cognition building at Yerkes, which they do on a voluntary basis, is to move past their outdoor enclosure, pushing a service cart, carrying a computer. The chimps burst out, hooting, and run to the doors of the building where we do the testing, lining up to get in. They're eager to spend an hour of what they see as fun and games and what we see as cognitive testing. We don't even have to reward them for their performance. For them, touching images and solving puzzles are enjoyable in their own right, end quote. Your second vision concerns transparency. You write, quote, it is absolutely essential to bring animals out of the shadows. We barely know what's going on at many places, which makes it easy to act as if nothing's the matter. We need research facilities with open door policies. End quote. How feasible do you think such a future is? And what do you think would be required from the listener or reader of your book to help make sure these two things happen?
0: Yeah, so transparency is absolutely essential, also for the agricultural industry, I would say. It's not just a... That's where the bigger numbers are, the the billions and billions of animals that we we have in agriculture. In research, we have maybe millions. In zoos, we have maybe thousands. And and so when people get very worried about a zoo uh, and say, I don't like zoos, it's so terrible, a good zoo is like a paradise compared to a pig farm. And, And so... People should, should choose their targets, and, and the main target should be agricultural facilities and also research facilities should be open. Uh, maybe not all parts of it, but uh, we should be proud to show them and how we keep the animals. And, and, and there are movements in that direction. Even neuroscientists, you would say neuroscience requires invasive research. It doesn't anymore. There are certain facilities now that have, for example, monkeys implanted with chips and and you can follow them with, with video cameras and follow uh, and even do some neuroscience on them and get information on on their brain activity while they're behaving socially with each other and so uh, there are different ways of doing things and it should all be set up in a way that takes the interest of the animals into account so smaller numbers of animals should be used and they should have more liberty and and more social contact instead of sitting in single cages, as is often the case still, at certain places. And and, and I, I think all of that is possible if people are willing to go that route. But many scientists have been trained in the old ways, and they think the old ways are the best ways. And um, as a result, the animals are suffering, in my opinion. And and so that's, that's the research side. So I think the research facilities could be much more open than they are nowadays. And agriculture, for sure, they... they if, if you uh, buy a piece of meat at the supermarket, for example, you should be able to know exactly how that animal was kept and, and where that animal lived and where it comes from. And, and there should be maybe a, a scan bar on the, on the piece of meat so that you can uh, look up in your cell phone where that animal comes from and how it lived and, and have an independent agency, not the farmer, but an independent agency who shows you a photo or a video of how these animals were kept.
1: It's a nice vision. I confess that I'm one of those people who is hoping for a cruelty-free future in terms of food, whether that means a purely vegan diet or perhaps lab-grown meats, if those can be done in a way that is not too impactful on the climate. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, I think that idea of barcodes through which people can see inside the plant, see what the conditions are, at the very least, I think that would immediately put pressure on the meat producers to change their facilities and improve the lives of those animals to whatever degree is possible under those conditions. So in the interim, I think that sounds like it would be an immense step in the right direction. In the medium to long term, hopefully we continue moving away from the current system and move towards a cruelty-free future. Professor DeWall, thank you so much. We've already taken up a lot of your time to wrap up. Could I just ask, is there anything you're working on now that you'd be willing to share with us?
0: Oh, I'm working on a book on gender at the moment. So uh, I thought let's take a topic that is not controversial. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, gender differences in the primates and you know people in the primates they have the impression that uh in all the primates that there's a there's a male boss and he owns the females and that's how the primates are organized which is really not the case uh, many primate females they have sort of autonomous lives they they, they live with other females they travel with other females uh, and the males are are off to do other things and so uh it's um, It's not as simple as people think it is. And so uh, I'm trying to explain in the book what the gender relationships are in in other primates and how that relates to
1: ours. That sounds wonderful. And I I don't think it should be too controversial. I hope it shouldn't be too controversial. Um, I think it sounds necessary. I think we need a book like that. I look forward to it. And perhaps we could speak again down the road about that. Yep. Professor DeWall, your book is a wonderful introduction to this important and fascinating subject. And I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for writing it and for your time and insights today. It has been such a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Professor Franz Duval about his 2019 book, Mama's Last Hug, animal emotions, and what they tell us about ourselves. It's a wonderful book, a compassionate and empathetic book, a fascinating and delightful book, and an important one. I hope you'll consider reading it. The theme music for this episode, and for all my episodes, is composed and performed by Dan Lurch. I'm Mark Malloy, and you've been listening to the New Books in Animal Studies special series on the New Books Network. See you next time.